Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12 and see the mandate of the Lord Jesus Christ by his greatest apostle, our beloved brother Paul, specially chosen for us Gentiles. Romans chapter 12, I read to you the first two verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. And amen. Amen. Two wonderful verses that give us a Christian mandate or a mission statement for our lives. We have reached the great divide in the book of Romans. We have spent 116 sermons on the first 11 chapters. And this is sermon 117. The first 11 chapters ended with a powerful amen at the end of four verses of powerful praise by the Apostle in closing out Romans chapter 11. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And that's the Holy Spirit's emphasis, not mine, because it has an exclamation point there. And we looked at that last Lord's Day. Eleven chapters come to a grand finale Here in these four verses, it's like a flurry of fireworks at the end of a 4th of July fireworks display, and then with an amen. Because we have a division in the Word of God, because He is an inspired logician. And the logic of the Apostle is beautiful in laying a foundation of God's mercies in saving us, and then applying that and appealing to us in how we ought to live for Him. This is typical of the apostle. Let me show you very briefly a couple of other examples. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you'll find the same kind of a division there. Ephesians chapter 4. You know what's in Ephesians chapter 1. It's election and predestination. You know what is in Ephesians chapter 2. Quickening from death in trespasses and sins. You know what's in chapter 3, or you should. It's the apostle bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But notice how chapter 3 ends in verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There's another inspired amen. As he closes off three chapters of doctrinal presentation of several phases of salvation and moves into the fourth phase, or the practical phase of salvation, our conversion, our sanctification, in which we are to live for Him. And notice how chapter 4 begins. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Lay the foundation of what God has done for us, who God is, what God is all about, His glory, and then appeal to us on how we ought to live in light of that. 
We could go to Hebrews as well, and I could show you there. It's not at a chapter division in Hebrews. It's in the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, but I'll not do that for the sake of time. Come back to Romans 12 and those first two verses. It's a wonderful division. I love the division. It makes perfectly good sense to me. The Holy Spirit designed it, that we show who God is and what He's done for us, and then let us appeal on the basis of that for how we can live for Him. We have before us one of the most concise and powerful calls of self-consecration in the whole Bible. Amen. Against sin. God has saved us, not for us to be fatalists and just to sit around and, and revel in the power of His election and predestination and regeneration and justification and reconciliation and glorification, but He has saved us to live honest, righteous, holy, sacred, wise, truthful, honest lives. And he's going to list many of these responsibilities in this chapter. If you read the chapter last night, he just throws out a great deal of miscellaneous responsibilities in just short word phrases. As you get to verse 9, and abhor that which is evil. I mean, that's one of the rules by which we should live. Cleave to that which is good. Not slothful in business. Now there's the whole Christian work ethic. We could preach for weeks on it because the Bible has so much to say about a good Christian work ethic, but the apostle has it in a few words. But before he gets to the list, he gives us a mandate of how we ought to live because of what God has done for us. Which chapter did you appreciate or what chapters of Romans do you love? Is it chapter 1 where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Or is it chapter 2 that says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. Or chapter 3, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or chapter 4, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Or chapter 5, For as by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Or chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Or chapter 8, Or chapter 8, Where do we go in chapter 8? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verses 15 and through 17. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 33. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 34 and so on. We come to Romans chapter 9, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. We come to chapter 10, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Chapter 11, and if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. 11 chapters of God's grace, 11 chapters of God's mercy, end with the climactic praise of the inspired apostle, and then a holy amen. And we come to the first verse of chapter 12. 
A simple outline of this chapter is the first two verses are the call to holy living by God's mercies shown in saving us. Verses 3 through 8 are various gifts and offices, formal and informal, official and unofficial, that church members and Christians have and how they ought to be exercised humbly for the care of the body. Verses 9 through 17 are miscellaneous duties as Christians. Many of them. Rejoicing in hope. Are three words good enough for you? They're full of meaning. And that is how we ought to be living. If you're unhappy, you are not a Christian. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hell. It just means you're probably going to hell. Meaning that there are a few carnal Christians, but there's not as many as we would like to think that there are. Rejoicing in hope. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to burn this place up and take us home with Him to be the heirs of God and the universe forever. Are you rejoicing because of that? Or is it not as exciting as your job, as your hobby, as your television? Oh Lord, help us. Verses 9 through 17 are those miscellaneous duties as Christians. Verses 18 through 21 are loving our enemies in peace and overcoming their evil with good rather than their evil overcoming our good. We want to overcome them, not be overcome by them. And so there are four divisions to the chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beseech you. This is a Christian mandate. There has been very little in the first eight chapters in the way of imperative verbs. Where it is described the fourth phase of salvation in chapters 6, 7, and 8, most of it has been indicative, meaning it is stating a fact. It is stating a description. But here is no description. This is an imperative instruction for us, and we want to get a hold of it this morning, or... Better yet, we want the Holy Spirit to get a hold of us. Lord, and I cannot do it. It, Volume doesn't accomplish it. Way more pages of outline than I need will not accomplish it. Intensity's not going to accomplish it. But I'll give you all three. The Holy Spirit has to do it with your humble reception of God's Word. I hope you prepared for it. If you wasted yesterday in frivolous activities, then you won't be as prepared as you should be. Because this is, this is where the bottom, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where those 11 chapters of God doing phenomenal, unbelievable, fantastic things for us through His Son Jesus Christ by His electing grace that sees us all the way to glorification into heaven as joint heirs of the Son of God. A joint heir. When the will of God is read, I will be an equal heir with the Lord Jesus Christ of the universe. We will judge angels with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's phenomenal. And so there's an appeal made right here of how we're going to live for Him. I beseech you, therefore, it's a mandate. A mandate is a command. It's an order or it's an injunction for us to do something. It frightens me when I read church mission statements nowadays. If you go to church websites today, like companies, they all copy each other. They're all sheep. Just direct me toward the slaughter. 
So companies all have these little trite mission statements that they think is going to give their company power and remind everybody of why they exist. And churches have come up with mission statements, and you ought to read some of them. They exalt the Great Commission to the neglect of most or everything else that the New Testament describes. Brother Newell and I had a conversation in exchange this week about the Southern Baptist Convention that is dealing right now with a movement in it to try to return it to more Calvinistic roots and have more Calvinism required and supported and defended and endorsed by the Southern Baptist Convention. And a team was put together, a study group and a team of their best preachers and pastors to come up with a resolution for the division that's taking place in this association of 14,000, the last time I knew, Baptist churches in America. And they came up with, I saw the mission statement, I saw the, the mandate of it, basically said, in light of the Great Commission, let's just overlook our doctrinal convictions. Now, now wait a minute. The Great Commission is about getting people saved. And the, the doctrinal differences between Calvinism and Arminianism are how people are saved. So how can you say, let's exalt getting people saved while we ignore how they get saved? And I am not exaggerating this issue, nor the resolution that intelligent men come up with. That's their mission statement. Now I wish that they could show me the Great Commission in the Epistle to the Romans. And when they can't find it there, I wish they'd show it to me in the Epistle to the Corinthians, number one. And when they can't, never mind. I could go through the whole New Testament. This is what God expects of us. And there isn't a thing in it about saving souls except, except your soul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Be ye transformed, that ye may prove, not that you can get other people to agree with you. We want to be able, and we want to be ready to give an answer to those that ask a reason of the hope that is within us. But we want to follow the Bible's order here, and when we have a holy amen, and then we get a mandate of how we ought to live, we want to look at its components and follow them. I beseech. Now the word beseech means to ask. It means to beg or to entreat or to supplicate for a thing. But don't you let that word deceive you about the importance of this mandate. The apostle uses that word repeatedly because it's just a mark of wisdom. When you want to get someone to do something or when you're giving an order, a good officer, a good leader, a good father, a good husband makes an appeal toward that end rather than just blasting. It's just inspired wisdom. This is a mandate. This is an order. This is an injunction of how they should live. But as typical with the Apostle Paul, he's as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. I beseech you, therefore... And so we have the word beseech. 
He draws a conclusion with the word therefore. That word therefore is precious. And I do not wish to be trite, but I want to remind you young children, when you find the word therefore in a verse, you should ask the question, what is the therefore there for? And adults can do the same thing and we benefit. Therefore is a logical conclusion being drawn from information already presented. And the information already presented is 11 chapters of God's mercies. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. See, 11 chapters of mercies should result in the apostle beseeching us to a certain lifestyle and we should willingly want to do it. And what he outlines for us, we should willingly say, it's very reasonable. It's very reasonable to live this way in the world for him who came from another world to die for us. And so we have the apostle reasoning that way. And the word therefore is there for the reason of 11 chapters of God's mercies. The Bible is a very logical book. The Bible doesn't just say, believe this because I told you so. Right. It's very logical. It's the logic of faith. We've spent preaching before on how logical and how reasonable the Scriptures are, and you should be able to see it right here. I beseech you therefore, because if you go read those first 11 chapters, it is just the apostle arguing doctrinal truth from Gentile depravity in chapter 1 to Gentile conversion in the last few verses of chapter 11. I beseech you therefore. And so we have this conclusion being drawn. Paul likes to present doctrine first and then draw practical duties from it. He's the consummate logician or rhetorician. Meaning he understands rhetoric. He understands the use and power of speech and writing to persuade. In the fewest number of words, he presents the truth and then calls on us to live a certain way in light of what he did. God has saved us for good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God did not save us just to have a head knowledge of truth. God did not save us to be fatalists. God did not save us to sit in here and sing about election unto glorification. God saved us to live holy lives as His children in this short period of time where He leaves us as pilgrims and strangers in this world. Have you lived this past week like you're a pilgrim? Or have you lived this past week like a nursing infant at the teat of the world? Or have you lived this past week like you're of the world? We're strangers and pilgrims here. This isn't our home. This isn't our world. We're looking forward to a day in which God will melt everything that you can see with fervent heat. And we're going into a new universe, a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We get so wrapped up. We get so wrapped up in our bodies which are decaying every day. We get so wrapped up in our jobs. We get so wrapped up in our houses. We get so wrapped up in our cars. We get so wrapped up in our yards. We get so wrapped up in our clothes. And all of it's going to decay and be burned up. And we're going to stand naked before Almighty God and then given new bodies that you can't produce in a gym nor with any amount of pharmaceutical or nutritional aids. Because it's all by glorification. 
And every part of our lives is a temptation for us to be worldly. And so the apostle says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he draws an argument for us. Whenever you see the word beseech in the Bible, you remember that it is not an ordinary man begging you. It's not an ordinary man asking you. This is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, specially chosen by the will of God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And when he says, I beseech you, that is serious, weighty appeal. It is amazing what some of you, meaning all of you and me, will do when a boss asks us to do something. When the president of the bank that I worked at once upon a time in another life would ask for something, it didn't matter if it took me staying up all night to do it. Not in violation of Psalm 127 on all occasions. On some occasions for sure. Asked to finish a project that was necessary with a deadline. Stay up all night and do it. The apostle asks us to do something, and the apostle has more authority and weight behind him than all presidents of all banks put together. They're all nothing in comparison to this mighty apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he beseeches us, we should humble ourselves before these words and be examining ourselves while you hear me preach today. What can I tear out of my life to give a sacrifice to the Lord? What can I tear out of my life so that I can present my body a living sacrifice by the terms of this mandate. It's amazing what we'll do for a husband, what we'll do for a father, what we'll do for a grandfather, what we'll do for a boss. This is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, And when we read about an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reading about an ambassador of God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We're reading about an ambassador of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this ambassador is telling us, this is the way you live in my kingdom. And if you don't want to live this way, then you don't belong in my kingdom. And you're probably not in it anyway. You're an imposter. And I will soon be walking up to you saying, friend, why don't you have a wedding garment on? This is how we must live. Let's go back to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You're all shouting. You're all shouting. Yes. Rah, rah, rah. Romans 8, 1. Well, you haven't finished the verse. Right. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Right. And that's right here in Romans 12, and then chapter 13, and then 14, 15, and 16 are five chapters about our duties, following 11 chapters of God's gracious mercies in our salvation. I beseech you therefore, brethren. I love that term there. Brethren. This is the mighty apostle. This is Saul of Tarsus, converted on the road to Damascus by the personal appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who called him by name and commissioned him with the greatest office in the New Testament, calling children in the church at Rome his brethren calling the least of saints in churches since Rome his brethren. Be moved by it. We are separate from the world. 
There is a family of God in this world, and the rest of them are children of the devil. Jesus would say in John 8.44, of His own nation, which was God's chosen nation, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. But we're brethren. And Jesus Christ made that patently clear in His ministry when He has said, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is not ashamed to call us His brethren. And you better hope He owns you as His brother. Because when we stand before God, God is going to ask Him, Where are the children I gave you? And Jesus Christ is going to respond by saying, Behold, I and the children which Thou hast given me. Amen. That's a family. Brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, we are the children of God in this world. God has chosen us out of the orphanage of sinful mankind. He sent His Son to be the purchase price for our adoption. He has regenerated us in giving us a heart compatible with His, because we have a new man within us by being born again. He sends the gospel to tell us of what He's done for us. We're His children. And we should treat each other like brethren. And the rest of the world, let them go their merry way. And that includes many that call themselves Christians, who are not committed to the Word of God, who are not committed to this kind of a lifestyle, who want to conform to the world, who want to play with the world, who want to be involved in the world's organizations, who want to be involved in the world's origins, who want to be involved in the world's pleasures, who want to be involved with the world's music who want to be involved with the world's approval. We don't want any of that. As we're going to see in these two verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren. The word brethren gripped me. How the mighty apostle is addressing children in our assembly and children in the first assembly of the church at Rome and children in assemblies between the two as his brethren. Because we're the children of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were adopted to that, and it separates us from all the rest of the world. We, ha- we have a unique relationship with the Apostle Paul. Though he's in heaven and we're still on earth, Hebrews 12 says we are come unto the spirits of just men made perfect. Right, right. They're in fellowship with us right now by the Holy Spirit of God. To the degree that they're viewing this assembly, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible does tell us, and I'm repeating myself now in Hebrews 12, 22, that we are come unto them. We are in a unity with them right now. And we're all brethren. We're the family of God. We're the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed of us. He gave himself for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's coming soon to take us unto himself and destroy all his enemies. And if it weren't for the grace of God, and it's purely by grace, there's nothing in any of us. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be consumed in his fearful wrath that is coming. It's only by the grace of God. But it's that grace that should motivate us to live for Him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. You know, the final few verses of Romans chapter 11 were about the mercies of God. Look at 30 through 32. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your Mercy, they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy 
upon all. In Romans chapter 9, did he say, I will have mercy upon whom? I will have mercy. There are very few pulpits preaching that message today. It is not because we are special. It is because God is special in his dealings toward us in calling us out of the world to be in a church where unconditional election and predestination by the purpose of God is preached unapologetically. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And so we have the mercies of God, and they're presented to us right here in these 11 chapters, and Paul appeals to them in this one verse, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You shouldn't care a thing about the God of heaven. You shouldn't care a thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. You shouldn't be in this house today. You should never stand before God justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all of His mercy. It's all mercy. Go back to Romans 1 if you want to find you and your ancestors. And we don't find them swinging in trees like baboons, like the world thinks. We find them worshiping baboons, which is worse. They're both terrible. But Romans 1 was horrible. Do you remember Romans 1? As we went through it carefully and saw the condemnation. Where does sodomy come from? Sodomy is God's judgment upon those that are unthankful and do not glorify Him as God when He has presented enough of Himself in creation for them to be without excuse. That is where sodomy comes from. It doesn't come from having the wrong toys as a child. It doesn't come from having a mother that wore a pair of pants. It comes from not being thankful. And this nation is unthankful. And this nation does not give God the glory. And they don't want God mentioned in school. And you can't use the Bible as a source document for writing any paper in the universities and colleges of this country. No wonder we have upon us an epidemic of perversity. Romans 1. He'll give them over to a reprobate mind. He'll rewire them. And we just read through all those chapters about the mercies of God. That's what we were like. We would not give God the time of day if it wasn't for the grace of God. Oh, Lord, we're thankful. But the appeal is to the mercies of God, and I hope that you can remember the mercies. This is how we ought to think and reason every day of our lives. What has God done for us? It's immeasurable. What can we do for Him? It's unspeakable. What can we do for Him? It cannot be repaid. What can we do for Him? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the apostle makes a similar appeal of logical reasoning. And has the Holy Spirit convinced your heart and mind this morning to be logical by thinking, I mean spiritually logical, to think about what God has done for us. Look at 2 Corinthians. It wasn't that many pages away. I don't want you to have to turn too many times. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us. 2 Corinthians 5.14. This is Paul writing with his ministerial brethren. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Christ's love for Paul blew his mind. It constrained him. It restricted him to one activity in life. For the love of Christ constraineth us. 
Because we thus judge, we logically think about it this way. If one died for all of us, the us that's under consideration here is what is chiefly being considered, then were all of them dead. And that he died for all of us, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. If the Lord Jesus Christ died for me and gave his life for me, then I judge that I ought to give my life for him who loved me and gave himself for me. You say, what made Paul so great? He just got gripped by that. I want to be gripped this morning. I want you to be gripped this morning, and God has to grip us. Oh, the Lord apprehended that man. The Lord apprehended Saul of Tarsus, and if he's not apprehending you as much, you should be repenting and fasting this day that he will. Because Paul had the great evidence. He could say at the end of his life, I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. I have fought a good fight. There it is. It's so logical. It's not just, I do what I do for Jesus because I love Jesus. It wasn't just, I do what I do for Jesus because I love religious stuff. When I was sitting in school and I was looking at all the options for a major, I picked religion. Nothing like that at all. Yes, I roll my eyes in disgustful hatred of that concept of picking the ministry. Back to Romans chapter 12. It worked with Paul. It should work with us. Right. Have you ever heard Paul reason this way before? How about Philippians 2, 1 where he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ... Hello? If there be therefore any consolation in Christ? Of course there's consolation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the apostle reasons from it. If, if, my Philippian brethren, there is consolation in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have comfort in your heart and soul of your eternal blessings because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, then you should be doing this. And so he reasons in Philippians that way. In Colossians he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Are we risen with Christ? We were baptized saying that we are risen with Christ. We were were buried in the water. We were raised again from the water. That was a resurrection showing us that there's another life coming and that Jesus Christ is coming back for us to save us by His burial and resurrection. And if if we're risen with Christ then we ought to be seeking those things which are above. The appeal is made in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which we emphasize so much. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. It goes on to verse 15 and it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. If you are thankful for being saved by the grace of God, then we should stand fast meaning fastened in one position with the truth of God's Word and not being moved away from it. What God has done to save us should change our lives. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let's not copy Hezekiah. Do you know what the Bible says of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32 and 25? 
Hezekiah was the man that was told by God through the prophet Isaiah, you're going to die. Set your house in order. He turned to the wall as Isaiah left the room and prayed and asked God to give him some life extension and how he would use those years if God would extend his life. God turned Isaiah around before he could get out of the king's palace and sent him back in there to tell King Hezekiah, I've given you 15 more years. But 2 Chronicles 32.25 tells us that Hezekiah did not render unto the Lord according to the benefit that he had been given. And he was puffed up in pride because God blessed him in those 15 years to be very rich and very successful. And while he never came close to stooping to the ridiculous excesses of the kings of Israel, he did get puffed up in pride and invited the ambassadors of Babylon in to see the treasures of the house of the Lord. He didn't repay the benefit, and it was recorded in Scripture. And do you know what it says? There was wrath upon Judah and upon Hezekiah because of that. Wrath. You say, well, why does God get angry? So, After giving his son and you going and living for this world, I think his wrath is entirely appropriate. The fact that he's so long-suffering to all of us is the most amazing thing. His wrath should be burning right now in this congregation, including the pulpit area. And those not living for the Lord Jesus Christ should be consumed and falling dead like they were in the church at Corinth and like they were in the church at Jerusalem. Oh no, God's not as angry as he is long-suffering. His anger is just waxing long and, and harder and hotter for the day when he will judge. He's been very merciful to us, and he gives us another opportunity today to humble ourselves before these words and look at them, that they were written by the God of heaven through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the pen of one named Tertius at the mouth of the Apostle Paul, to warn us of how we ought to be living. Let's not be like the apostate false teachers that Peter condemned in 2 Peter 2.1, where he said they even deny the Lord that bought them. See, the Lord, the Lord did something good for them. He brought the Jews out of Egypt. And they deny even the God that bought them. The apostle appealed to that in 2 Peter 2.1. Back to Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. God has given you a body, and you live a bodily existence in this world. We are multiple parts to us. We have a spirit that goes to be with the Lord when our body dies. We have a soul that's the combination of some sort of the spirit within us. We have a heart, we have a mind, we have these various parts and these words that are used in the Bible to describe the inner part of us, the outer part of us. But we have a body that circulates and floats through this world, and God wants us to present our bodies to Him. The Lord Jesus Christ was given a body, and He presented His body to Pilate, the governor of Judea. And He presented His body to Herod in His judgment hall. And His body was ripped apart for you. His body was pierced. His body was stripped naked. His body was tortured until he gave up the ghost and his spirit went to heaven. He gave his body for you. He asks for our bodies. When he gave his body, he was buying our bodies. 
Jesus Christ died for our bodies as much for our, as much for our spirit. That's why He's going to come back and resurrect our bodies from the grave. They're His. You know what they're called? You know what our bodies are called? The bodies of believers in the Bible. The purchased possession. We're His possession. And when we say we're His, yeah, of course there's our spirit that's inside this body, but it includes the body. It's the purchased possession. We're waiting for our adoption. That is the redemption of our bodies from the grave. But He wants our bodies. I have preached to you before about your body. Your body is the Lord's. And it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 is the most extensive passage in the Bible, verses 13 through 20, about your body. Listen to the Apostle Reason as he gets to the last two verses. What? 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 Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has purchased our body and our spirit. Therefore, we want to perfect holiness in body and spirit, in the fear of the Lord. Your body is not your own. You know, the argument of our women in this country is that they can abort babies whenever they feel like it because it's part of their bodies. And their bodies are their own. No. Your body isn't your own. On two counts. One, that He created your body. So everything we do with the body should be in agreement with the Creator of that body. The body is a gift to house your spirit. And even if you're not saved, He is still the Creator of your body. Second, for those that are saved... Jesus died for our bodies. So our bodies are twice His. And that's why the apostle would ask, What? Know ye not? This basic point of Christianity? And so his argument in 1 Corinthians 6 is not that you shouldn't smoke. I have heard 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost as an argument against tobacco more times than you can shake a stick at. It has nothing to do with tobacco. It has nothing to do with alcohol. It has nothing to do with marijuana. It has to do with exactly what is described in those verses of 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20. Fornication. Because the apostle is arguing, why do you take the temple of the Holy Ghost and put it in bed with a harlot? You're sinning against your body, which is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Bible doesn't have anything to say about what the Holy Ghost thinks of tobacco. You know, I've got my personal opinions, and you probably have your personal opinions. But if you just look through the 31,101 verses of the Bible, it doesn't say anything about it. But it sure has something to say about fornication. Right. And that's a sin against the body. When we take our body and couple it up with a pagan prostitute in some bed, which they were doing in Corinth, because Corinth was like our Las Vegas or San Francisco. They they coined a verb from to Corinthianize a people is to reduce them to corruptness and corruption in morals. Horrible city. Pagan priests and temple prostitutes and unbelievable 
moral atrocities committed in that city. And that's why in 1 Corinthians there's more emphasis placed on marriage and not marrying and so forth than in any other epistle of the New Testament. But it's in that epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that he says that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost and they shouldn't be used for fornication. And so we're, we're supposed to present our bodies to the Lord. The Lord wants your heart. He wants your mind, soul, and strength and your thoughts all dedicated to Him. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But that includes giving Him your body. And it follows that you want to give Him your body. And that passage that I've referred to, 1 Corinthians 6, is wonderful. And it's, it's so precious and it's so powerful in teaching us that He created it and He died for it. Therefore, our bodies are His. Get your mind working with a few examples of bodily sins. I've mentioned one already, abortion. I've mentioned another already, fornication. What about your appearance? You women, when you put on clothes, you're to be covering up your body's appearance. You're not supposed to be revealing it. You're not supposed to be drawing attention to it. You're supposed to be covering it up. Clothes are to conceal, not to reveal. It's a change in the last few generations where clothes are designed to reveal, to draw attention by their brightness, by their cut, by their design, by their accessories, by their shape, by their tightness, by their shortness. Your body, appearance, your burial. We bury people. We don't cremate them. You'll be excluded from this church if you approve of a cremation. You pagan Hindu. You'll burn soon enough for wanting to desecrate a gift of God. And that is our bodies. Where do you think that came from? It's a sickening crime. But we don't have time to deal with that. I want you to think about your clothing. Is it to glorify and honor the body that God gave you for His honor and glory? What about drunkenness? To take something into your body or any chemical that you would take into your body that would so alter your body's ability to function that it becomes a disgrace instead of a picture of grace. Think about these things. When it says that you present your bodies, I don't want you to just think that they're words. They have great meaning for us. What about bodily exercise? The Bible says that your bodily exercise is worth very little, somewhere between very little and nothing. And I can promise you in the long run it's worth nothing. But it profiteth little. But godliness is profitable unto all things. And so see, we can get too wrapped up in our bodies. And the apostle knew all about it. The first gyms in the world were by the Greeks in the generations just preceding the apostle Paul. The gymnasiums of the Greeks. And they didn't wear clothes. And that's why the Jews that ever participated in those gymnasiums would have to go have another operation, minor surgery, on a private part of their anatomy in order to look like the Greeks so that they wouldn't look out, stand out in the gymnasiums. That's a whole other subject. I just want to tell you how important the body was to the Greeks. But look what's happened in our society. All the emphasis is on the body. What about the spirit that's going to have to meet God? Present your bodies. They're gods. He created them, and Jesus Christ died for our bodies. 
So make sure exercise is in its proper place. If you are not reading the Word of God and praying longer than you exercise, there's two possibilities. Do you know what they are before I get to them? You are exercising too much or you are not reading and praying enough. Because why would you be emphasizing your body more than your spirit? I just want you to think about everyone. I want to get everyone. What about fasting? When was the last time you fasted to show God that your body is committed to Him? Gluttony. Overeating as pleasure. Your body in marriage is not your own. The wife doesn't have power of her own body. 1 Corinthians 7 says. Now who made that rule up? The husband doesn't have power of his own body. Who made that rule up? Who told me that I don't have power over my own body in marriage? And that if I don't feel like it tonight, that's a good enough excuse for my wife not to get any. You say you're being too plain for me. Well, you need to get, you need help. This is life. And this is dealing with our bodies. As 1 Corinthians 7, the first five verses say that the wife doesn't have power of her own body, and it says the husband doesn't have power of his own body, who made that rule up? Right. The God of heaven did, and my body is his. Amen. So, you know, when it comes to marriage, we owe things with our bodies because the Bible tells us we do. What about the makeup you women put on? What are you trying to look like? Miley Cyrus? What, what's your goal? What are you, what are you trying to do? Do we need to drop you off on West Washington Ave to see how many propositions you can get in the next hour? What are you wearing it for? Is it to be meek? Is it to be shamefaced? Is is your is your life clothed with good works? Are you so fussing about nutrition that you can't function? There isn't a, there isn't a verse in the Bible about nutrition. God doesn't care. He's made your body so that they can process just about anything. Anybody living in America has already proved that by sitting in here today. You know, we take our strawberries and gas them. Pick them when they're green and gas them. We gas everything now. You know, we've got it sprayed with enough pesticides to possibly kill us. And we survive. You know, the Lord's made bodies amazing. Boys between 13 and 19 can eat Coke and chips and it turns into muscle and bone. What in the, whoever designed that? And then if I were to eat nothing but protein from now for the rest of my life, it just turns into pure fat. All in a lifetime. The Lord's made our bodies the way they have, but there's nothing. I just don't want us to go to an an extreme on anything. I want us to give our bodies a sacrifice to the Lord. Do you give your body enough sleep? We had a lesson today from Psalm 127 that God expects us to get sleep because He's a loving Father. How about tattoos? Do you tattoo up your body? Have you thought about what you're doing to the temple of the Holy Ghost before you go down to that pagan parlor to have somebody put ink on you, in you? Have you gone to the Bible to find out what the Bible says about tattoos? You know, if you're a woman that wishes you were a man and you want a piece of barbed wire around your bicep, I guess that's between you and your father and your husband. I'm not changing my position on tattoos. You know, if you're a woman that wants... A strand of barbed wire around your bicep, that's between you and your husband, the Lord. But remember that if there's any marking in your flesh that has to do with pagan religion, it is wrong and God has condemned those markings. 
And I want to remind you that when you go to those pagan parlors that do the work, that they are devil worshipers 99 times out of 100. They are not in the best parts of town. They are in the worst parts of town. The people working in them are the most twisted people on planet Earth. Just mentioning that. Virginity. You know, does God make girls virgins? Does God expect girls to be virgins when they get married? Absolutely. This is how we present our bodies. We think about all these things. Have I dealt with these things before? At length, in a series that you can look up on on a website that was made for you, type into a search function that's the little magnifying glass at the right hand of the toolbar at the top of the page, Lord of my body, and see what you get. And think about it there. There are three descriptive phrases that that the Holy Spirit gives us by Paul about presenting our bodies. There's three ways in which we're to present our bodies. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Very quickly, a living sacrifice is a life of self-denial that exalts God and His things over worldly things. A holy body is the pure and sanctified lifestyle that is commensurate or appropriate or proportionate to a holy God that hates sin. And acceptable to God means that we treat our bodies the way that God tells us to treat our bodies. We have His emphases, and we, ne- we neglect the things that He neglects in the Bible, and we focus on the things that He focuses on. Those are the three things the Bible teaches us. First, a living sacrifice. Jesus presented His body a dying sacrifice, and He lives forever. We're supposed to present our bodies a living sacrifice, putting them to death every day. When the Bible says, mortify, therefore, the members of your flesh, what does the word mortify mean? What does a mortuary mean? What does a mortician do? That helps us understand what the word mortify means. You probably haven't used the word mortify in the last week, but mortify means to put to death. And there's parts of us that we want to put to death about our bodies. The lust of our flesh, we want to put to death. The lust that thinks it can have sex anywhere, anyhow, anytime, with anyone. And the world says that that's entirely acceptable. But we put it to death. You know, the lust to eat the third Big Mac after you've had two Big Macs and are full. The lust, put it to death. The lust to sleep nine hours when you could be fully functional at seven hours. The lust of sleep. The lust that rage with our flesh were to give our bodies a living sacrifice. Because the Christian religion is a religion of self-denial. The Christian religion is a religion of temperance, which means moderation, which means self-discipline. And so we we deny ourselves. That's what got Asaph in Psalm 73 when he was looking around at the wicked, living without discipline and having what appeared to be very prosperous, successful, and happy lives. He said, I've washed my hands in vain. I deny myself all the time. The Christian religion is a life of self-denial. But the things that we deny result in our happiness here, and the things that we deny please God, and a little bit of denial here is not to be compared to the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And if we deny ourselves the things the Bible tells us to deny ourselves, we will be happier off here and now because His commandments are all good. They are not grievous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. 
Christians lose their happiness by not following God's rules closely enough. If we follow God's rules closely enough, our marriages are better. You can think whatever you want, that you have a better scope on life. Do you know that everyone in this assembly just a few days ago was dirtying on themselves? And you think you have a better perspective on how to live? Please! We had people that had to pin diapers on you. And me. God has spoken. And we present our bodies a living sacrifice by denying the things that He tells us to deny and doing the things that He's told us to do and it results in pleasing Him. It results in evidence of heaven and, and, it gives us the happiest lives now. For anyone, I know none of you will raise your hands or probably won't even nod because you don't want your neighbors to know about you. But you know, I'm 56 years old and I've tried life a few ways in my time and the only time I'm happy the only time I'm truly happy, the only time I'm truly satisfied, the only time I'm truly content is the closest I am to the Lord right. and doing exactly what He says and putting spiritual things first. Amen. I know all about getting pumps in gyms and feeling awesome in a gym. I don't want to go anywhere else. I know lots of pleasures. But the greatest pleasure is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with Him and obeying Him and having a clear conscience and where He's communing with you by His Spirit. There's nothing to, be, nothing to compare to it. Right. The, rest is a, the rest is a total delusion. It, is, it, is, it makes you angry to even think about it. And yet, our flesh is so deceitful and wicked that it will corrupt us in five minutes after this service is over if it has a chance. Right. Into thinking that sin is more exciting than living a life of godliness. Yeah. That's the lie of the devil. He had to do that to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Do you know what Eve would have got if she hadn't eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Eve would have lived forever because she and Adam could eat the fruit of the tree of life every day. They would have lived forever in a perfect world, just doing it God's way. And we are the, we are the children of God. Look at, what, look at what was taught to us from Psalm 127. God loves us so much that in the biggest events of our lives, He wants us to... What does He want us to do in the biggest events of our lives? Go to bed. Is that a loving father? Amen. How many fathers have said to their children, don't worry about it, just go to bed and I'll take care of it. You know, they didn't finish cutting the grass. They didn't finish weeding the garden. They didn't finish washing the car. Just go to bed, I'll take care of it. You know, that's a, in its proper place, that's a loving dad. There's a time to say, kid, I'm going to sit here in the chair and drink a nice cold soda while you wash the car and finish the job. There's a time for that, but I, I just want you to think what a loving father we have. Wonderful father. Amen. We want to give our lives a living sacrifice to him. We've been saved from this world not to continue playing with it, but to deny it altogether. It is a life of self-denial. The grace of God that hath appeared to all men teaching us that, denying ungodly lusts. Titus chapter 2. The truth when it's presented right, teaches us to deny ungodliness. The Bible talks about some body mutilation. When it says a living sacrifice, we're alive, but we're sacrificing things in our lives. It's called crucifixion. It's called taking up your cross daily with the Lord Jesus Christ, taking up a cross. Now that is not some small amount of pain. So there's going to be some pain in getting rid of some of the things that we like that God doesn't like. But that's why it's called a living sacrifice. Jesus said, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me daily, then you're not worthy of me. 
He took up His cross for us and literally died on it. And if we take up our cross for Him, you know what He said? If you lose your life for My sake, you'll find it. The greatest fulfillment of a person's life is losing it for the Lord Jesus Christ in the terms that He teaches in the Bible. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ would say, if you have a temptation, then pluck out your right eyeball. Now our eyes are very precious and dear to us. But if there is something tempting you, then pull out something precious. He says, cut off your right hand. That's something practical. This is precious. This is practical. Of course it's practical. Of course it's precious. I just said both for both. But you can pluck out and cut off. If there's some temptation in your life, cut it off. He doesn't mean it literally. You know, the greatest theologian that's ever lived thought he meant it literally. And so he took a pair of scissors and made himself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's Origen, the greatest of the church fathers. Why would you want to read him about anything else if he couldn't figure out Matthew 19? Should I pass out the scissors? The Lord Jesus said that because it's better to lose a hand, something that we like a lot in our lives, and to go to heaven than to love this thing and not have the evidence of eternal life. That's what it means to give your body a living sacrifice. You should be thinking about anything in your life that you should get rid of for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't even want to make a provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You want to cut off all associations and friends like we heard from Stephen last Lord's Day from Psalm 101. A sacrificed life includes choices reducing your carefulness as I've taught you from 1 Corinthians 7. You lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. Holy. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. That means we cut off, kill, mutilate, tear off, avoid anything and give up things that we like. We deny ourselves so that we can give Him our all. Then we want to be holy because God is holy. We want our our bodies to be holy. So everything we do with our bodies should be holy because God is holy. And as a holy God, He expects holy sacrifices being presented to Him. Holiness is moral or spiritual purity without blemishes or spots of sin or wickedness. It is consecration to God only and separation from all the filth of this world because this world is God's vile enemy. He hates us even being spotted by the flesh of this world. Therefore, he says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us wash and cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. 2 Corinthians 7.1, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is how we should live. And what are the seven promises given to us for 2 Corinthians 7.1? Well, they're found in the last five verses of chapter 6. And they describe seven promises of God to walk with and dwell with and be among His people if they'll be holy. Nobody knows what holiness is anymore. It's not preached anymore. Holiness is moral purity that is a consecrated and sanctified life for use by God only. It is getting rid of any impurity and dirt, filthiness, and distraction of this vile world. In the, New, in the Old Testament, when I preached on holiness at length, I took you to Numbers chapter 15, and I talked to you about a blue fringe on their garments. Do you remember? Israel had to add, after Numbers chapter 15, a blue fringe to all their garments to remind them 
that in Numbers 15, a man went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. And they put him in the detention center. And they went to the Lord and said, what should we do with them? Stone them. He picked up sticks. Lord, all he did was pick up sticks. He didn't worship another God. He didn't kill his children. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't abort a baby. He just picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Stone them. And put a blue fringe on all your garments to remember Numbers chapter 15. That's the God of the Bible. You say, well, he's different in the New Testament. He's just a big cotton candy granddaddy in the sky. Is that why he says in Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Right. Quoting from the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul applies them just the same. I wonder why saints died in the church at Corinth in the New Testament. I wonder why Ananias and Sapphira died in the New Testament. We want to be holy for this God. You read a chapter last night in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 4, where holiness is defined for you in the first eight verses as sexual purity. Acceptable unto God. What does it mean? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Acceptable unto God means that we do it by His rules. Acceptable to God. Whatever God wants is what we give Him. First of all, it's a living sacrifice. We're willing to give up things that we like if God doesn't like them. Second of all, we're holy because He's a holy God. Third, it's His rules that define holiness and how we give our bodies to Him. Do you pray like David did? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart... I need help. I just kind of lost the verse. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. It's Your thoughts are not your own and your words are not your own and don't ever think that. Your thoughts and your words should be God's words and David knew how to pray that way and I hope that we pray that way, mean that, and then go and make the effort to make our words and our thoughts the Lord's. Amen. Do you know that when you submit to a boss or a a higher officer telling you what to do, and it's a forward boss, and they don't keep their word, and they mistreat you, do you know when you submit for conscience toward God, it's acceptable with God? Amen. These are things the Bible tells us that don't quickly meet the eye. It doesn't make sense to us that if we suffer under a bad boss, that we're doing something acceptable to God, but the Bible says it's exactly acceptable to God. Listen, how can you serve a good boss? That isn't serving. That isn't submission. That's a vacation. You need a bad boss in order to be able to prove that you really fear God. And the Bible says so much more. The Bible says it takes reverence and godly fear for our service and worship to be acceptable to God. Hebrews 12, 28. The reason we have sober services and the reason we do things the way we do them is very much by design. And it's very much by inspired commandments of the New Testament. We don't care what every other church does. We want to follow the Bible, so we're going to be reverent in here. And so we're reverent. Justice and judgment, or mercy, is more acceptable to God than sacrifice, isn't it? So we remember that. 
Romans 14 tells us that all these little nitpicking, ticky-tack rules that people make up about what you eat and what you drink and playing, playing cards and things like that, that is not acceptable to God. Those things don't, he, God doesn't even care about them. He tells you exactly what matters to him in Romans 14. We're going to get to that chapter soon enough. But in the 23 verses of Romans 14, and all the ticky-tack rules that people like to make, that doesn't please God. He wants those whose lives are filled with righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. Amen. And so that's, this is how we present our bodies acceptable unto God, is doing things His way. Do you know that it's, it's acceptable to God for us to make prayers and supplications and giving of thanks for all that are in authority? Do you know that means our president as well? Is it hard for you to do it for our president? Do you think it's easy for me to do it for our president? But I want to tell you something. If it's the will of God, and I believe Romans 12.1, that I'm going to do it. Right. And we do do it. Amen. And we do it publicly, and I do it in private. Right. You know what it says in 1 Timothy 2.3, after listing, praying for your rulers and giving thanks for them? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Right. Do you know that children should repay their parents for all the parents do for them when they are young if their parents are ever in need rather than letting those parents ever have to mooch off the church for support? This is acceptable to God that children take care of parents. Much more could be said. Oh, Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, We labor, therefore, whether present or absent, that we may be accepted of him. Everything the apostle did, he did that God would accept him through Jesus Christ, which is your reasonable service. I beseech you, therefore, you think I'm preaching long. Why don't you write me the life of Christ and give me his last 24 hours and tell me whether he got tired or not on your behalf and wanted to bail out? Give me a couple more minutes. I want the text. I'm speaking to myself as well. The Lord Jesus did not get tired. I read that He had a last supper. And I don't read of Him getting a night of sleep before His crucifixion. Do you know what you're like when you miss an entire night? What if you preached and were tortured during that night? What would you be like the next morning? Okay, you can handle a couple more minutes. Thank you. I appreciate all the yeas and amens. Amen. Which is your reasonable service. You know what? Serving God this way is a reasonable response on our part for what He has done for us. Right. In light of God's mercies, any sacrifice we could give would be nothing. Amen. Right. Due to the greatness of our crimes, our inability to have ever saved ourselves, and God's sovereign choice to show mercy to us and not to others. That should elicit from us a willing yes, sir, right. to what's here. Do you know when the Saul of Tarsus finally met the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he say? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Immediately. And that's what we should all be saying today. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Is it to change my television viewing? Is it to change my bodily exercise? Is it to wear different clothing? Is it to treat my spouse differently and go through the whole long list of obeying Romans 12.1 because of what God has done for us? There's something, there's some things in every one of our lives that we can always give Him more. And do it cheerfully. 
and gladly because of what He's done for us. What do you reckon your salvation debt to be? What quantity and quality of existence could you possibly have to pay for it? If He only gives you a 70-year lifetime, is that too long? Does that mean that you get to take it easy until you're on your deathbed? Or you young people, you're going to take it easy until you're 40? Then you'll get serious? I look at if I make it to 70 years of age as being very inadequate to repay Him who right. gave His only begotten Son for me. Right. Isn't that how we should reason? Amen. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said that He, has, he had forgiven, this is by a parable, He said He had forgiven a man 10,000 talents and that man was all upset about some friend of His that owed him a hundred pence. Now in the Bible, a penny was what you get was a day's wages for a day laborer. So let's call it a hundred bucks. So a hundred pence is ten thousand dollars. Do you know what ten thousand talents of gold is? Fifteen billion. How are you going to repay fifteen billion? And somebody bothers you with a hundred pence? Listen, you should be looking through the congregation right now. Who can you go forgive as soon as the service ends? Right. I wish they owed me a million pence. I wish they had really done something big. Then I could forgive them something big. But we have a huge debt. You know how we get to repay it? It's our, it's our reasonable service by just giving him these things that he's asked in Romans 12 and verse 1. Those that have been forgiven much, love much. How much have you been forgiven? We should use Paul's reasoning. We thus judge. That if one died for all, then all were dead, and they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself, gave himself for them. Yep, that makes perfectly good sense. Even when we do all that we should do. You know what Jesus taught us to say in Luke 17.10? When you have kept every commandment, and you've kept Romans 12.1 perfectly, you should say to the Lord, we are unprofitable servants. That's right. We have done that which was our duty to do. Amen. Lord, it was our pleasure to give you our lives. Lord, I'm 70. We should be able to say at the end of our lives, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. It was nothing in comparison to what you've given to me. Right. That should be our spirit. So that any of these little things, when we think about how dear they are to us and how, how we think we're going to miss them, you won't miss them if you give them up in the proper spirit of humility, because God will repay them many times over. The Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, when Peter opened his mouth and said, Lord, we have forsaken all to follow you. Jesus said, no man hath forsaken father, mother, brother, sister, houses, lands, or anything in a long list that he doesn't receive 100-fold more right. in this present life and in the world to come, eternal life. Amen. Amen. You never lose giving up things for the Lord. Right. It's entirely reasonable to follow a lifestyle that results in our greatest happiness for His great gift. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything unreasonable about it at all. But the world... Your flesh and the devil are not going to let you think it's reasonable. They're going to chafe and argue and fight and resist, thinking I'm extreme or Paul's extreme or the church is extreme. When we get too extreme and we're too holy, I'll preach against it. I pro I've promised you that for years. When we're too holy and we're too separate from the world 
and we're just living pure, holy, sanctified lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's gone to an excess, I'll preach a little worldliness so that we can come back to where, no, let's just keep on working for what we should be doing. David would ask in Psalm 116 and verse 12, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Amen.